Welcome to today's Suffolk Money podcast supported by King's Fleet Wealth. Today's guest is George Agnew, the co-owner of the Ruffham Estate. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to get to know George and to just be able to ask him a few questions. And I trust that as you listen to our conversation, uh, you'll learn something more about his real desire to do the right thing, uh, to look after the land which uh, he feels is entrusted to him for future generations, but also at the same time uh, to make a profit and to uh, keep his business viable in a time of great change and uncertainty. And of course, as we approach Christmas, what do you do with fields of Christmas trees and an empty barn? Well, the Ruffham estate, it's an an agricultural estate of about 3,000 acres that has um, a surprisingly large amount of woodland. It's got about 650 acres of woodland, which is very unusual, even in the whole of England, particularly so in East Anglia. Um, Wooded areas in in East Anglia are usually about 8% or something like that of the total, whereas we're over 20 and so um, we have wonderful, basically we have beautiful landscape here for our, our estate. It may be on rather flat land, but um, it's made up for by fantastic veteran oak trees, ancient meadows, wonderful hedgerows, footpaths, woods, as I say, and then um, big and small fields. We try not to have such big fields. We never ripped out a lot of hedges here. We did pull some out in the 60s but we have been replanting a lot of hedges in the last few years. So um, we're very proud of our landscape and we see ourselves as custodians of that here and work hard and continuously to find new ways to make it more wildlife friendly and more beautiful for everybody. So what's the, what's the history of uh, your family's involvement with the estate? Our family or my family uh, bought this place in 1904. Uh, my great-grandfather had been an art dealer in London who had decided to take early retirement in his 50s. Um, and he, um, 1904, this is the beginning of the Edwardian era, and it was the sort of high point of, of, of the aspiration to, to live a sort of country gent lifestyle in a sort of grand mansion surrounded by rolling acres and blasting the hell out of everything with shotguns and and that sort of thing. And that was rather his ambition, I'm afraid to say. Um, But uh, he did also, um, he was also a wonderful gardener and he was a politician. He was, he became the Liberal MP for West Salford in Manchester, which um, our family had come from that part of the world. And so his father had also been the MP for Salford and his, and his father had been the mayor of, second mayor of Salford. So it always, amuses me when I see Salford appearing so much on BBC media these days and I think oh well that's our old stamping ground um, but uh, but basically the family came came down here because my great-grandfather wanted to retire and have a nice nice life and uh, for about 10 years it worked well and then of course the first world war happened and things all got a bit different yeah it must mean some some significant changes after that I guess yes there's a um, there's an estate photograph um, taken the year he became an MP in 1906, which shows 
60 people, all men, in serried rows outside our home farm buildings. And they were basically the employed estate staff, but they were all gamekeepers and gardeners, which shows basically my great-grandfather's priorities in life. This does not include any women, so it doesn't include anybody from the house, or there were obviously masses of other people involved, but they didn't qualify for a photograph, sadly. And that, the estate was the same size at that, at that point, 3,000 acres? It was a little bigger. Right. My, uh, when my grandfather died, uh, a lump of land had to be sold off to pay death duties. And so there was about 500 acres sold at that point. Still, you know, a lot of people for that amount of territory, I guess. Yeah, well, yes, I think it's... Uh, oh, I see you were trying to divide it up per acre. Yeah, I was just thinking, yeah, how I many just, people I that is. just thinking, um, well... It's it's just how different things are now, and the and the way one tries to manage things with just a few people, and um, and and more efficiently. I mean, there was almost no farming going on here at that stage because all the land was, apart from the home farm, all the land was tenanted out. So right. the tenants did not appear in this photograph, and their workmen did not appear in the photograph. So if you'd had all of them, I it would have to be you know, one of those cameras which goes around in a circle. Like you have for a school photograph. Panoramic view. <laughs> Goodness, that's phenomenal, isn't it? How many people were involved in that at that stage? And I don't imagine that was any different to anywhere else. It's no. just that's the one I've seen. Yeah, yeah. And then, as you say, there would have been those who worked in the house as well. Uh, Absolutely, yes. I owned all the between maids and housemaids and kitchen maids and cooks and butlers and all these grooms and all these various people. And... Uh, I, I do quite a lot. I've done quite a lot of research about the history of the of Ruffham Hall and, and things like that. So I'm conscious of how it all worked here. But again, this is just one house in one village in one county. And mm. th this was the way that rural life was in those years. So, before so very sort of Downton Abbey, I guess, is uh, yeah. a good example of. In a, in a sort of way, it's a sort of downscaled Downton Abbey, yes. Yeah, yeah. Downmarket Downton. <laughs> um, but obviously things have changed. So what's changed over time to where you are right now? A huge amount. Uh, we have, um, during the 60s, during the 50s and 60s, um, it was felt that farming was a profitable activity and it was a sensible thing for us to try to farm our, the, the land on the estate in hand. And so progressively, as tenancies came to an end, we took back pieces, those pieces of land in hand so that we now end up with a, a big farming operation here. Um, and the, the only tenancies we have are really based on things to do with grazing and things like that, because we, we're very keen on livestock, but we don't really like to have to look after them. So we try, try to organise experts to do that who, who specialize in that sort of thing and we get on with what we know about and wh what about now how how would the the uh, administration of the estate look right now what well, does it well consist now of? of course things are changing again i mean the farming is um is, is coming up to a, a massive change because we've all been so dependent actually it predates the european uh, membership of the european union um, agricultural support has been around in this country since Second World War and in various forms because 
basically people were hungry and they needed to generate food and that sort of thing to feed everybody. This is true for the whole of Europe and probably large parts of the world. Um, and so we've all got very used to the fact that we've we've had grants to keep us going and we've spent most of our time moaning about the fact that they've arrived late and things like that and whether or not somebody's going to try to fiddle with them. And now, of course, what's happening for farming particularly is we face the prospect of losing our grants. And um, this is a very big shock for all of us. Um, and I mean, I feel quite strongly about it that um, it's, it's quite difficult for farmers in this country to lose their grants when the people that they directly compete against will still have theirs. And, um, and so this is one of the things which is going to make it, it, make it very difficult. I, I ran a little exercise, um, desktop exercise in our office a few years ago to actually look at what the implication would be economically for us of taking away the grant that we get every year. And it basically would mean, mean that we would make money one year in five in our, on our farm if we did nothing to change the way we were operating. And I have to say, I, I would say that we are certainly in the top 10%, if not in the top 5% of efficiency, efficient farms in the country. And if we can't make it work, I think, a lot of people are going to struggle. In fact, almost everybody is going to struggle to make it work. And so um, we're very concerned about this. And like a, like a lot of other people, we're having to find ways, new ways of making money around here. And, uh, and effectively um, using arable land for non-arable activities, crudely speaking. Um, so we've started up two new ventures this year, which have actually been hugely successful. One is growing sunflowers for a pick your own sunflower operation. People come, come along and um, they, they go, they don't pay anything to, to show up and they or park, but they can wander around. We create a sort of semi maze and they go and um, gather sunflowers and then we have refreshments and all sorts of other things there. And this is very, very popular in the summer. Absolutely seemed to hit the spot. Um, and then we did pick your own pumpkins later on, on adjacent bit of land and again that was a roaring success and so things like that are um are ways that that you can make some money out of the land that doesn't depend on a grant but it's not going to it's not going to replace the grants mm. because the um the grants were, were um were significant um and i think people need to realize that the that the reason for the grants actually was to make food cheaper for the general public in the shops. I think we have some of the cheapest food in Europe in our shops and the public are used to that. And, and basically if, we, if, um, if farmers don't get grants, which or lose their grants, they're either going to have to farm for no money at all effectively, no profit, or they're going to have to put their prices up. And of course, that will only work if everybody does it. And that, and, and it could be that long-term, what you're actually going to see is um, food prices going up in the shops as a result. And so, but basically that the state gives the grant with the one hand, the state is of course people, and then you goes around full circle and then the people are actually stung by having to pay more for the food. So I. I sort of think it's one of those things where you you can't really win. You just 
keep kicking the ball down the road or around the corner and it eventually comes back to where it started so somewhere along the line it sounds like you, you have to rob peter to pay paul and you have to keep robbing peter to pay paul and and and, and don't tell peter you've done it you know that's <laughs> it but uh, but then peter will be robbing paul and and it just goes on and yeah. uh, and uh, it's like musical chairs at some point the music's going to stop and then what's going to happen mm, yeah that, that could be difficult <laughs> yes. so, so how have you approached this from a business sense because i mean there's there's sort of two aspects to that one is what would happen in society food going up that that obviously presents some issues but there is a business model too which you were already referring to of of, of diversifying going into other arrangements so you've mentioned pumpkins you've talked about sunflowers as we approach christmas I understand yes, that's have, a big big time of year for you as well. We have a few other activities here. <laughs> it's just that these other activities are so established here now that I hardly even see them as diversification. <laughs> They're just our mainstream activities. Uh, we, um, on the Rothman Estate, we grow a lot of Christmas trees. and We've uh, won various, well, we became British Christmas Tree Grower of the Year in 2002 for our Christmas tree operation. And... Um, we're very proud of our Christmas trees. In fact, this morning, as soon as I finish this interview with you, I shall be involved with getting our Christmas trees going on sale. And that will be going on for obviously right through to Christmas now. And that's a that's a very big activity. And it, it's one which as an estate, we started doing probably about 70 years ago. And we started by selling the trees from our estate office, which is down on perched on the edge of the A14. It's Absolutely. There, I mean, we're not quite in the slow lane, but we're not far off it. And um, if you can just imagine a foggy afternoon in um, about the 10th of December and people coming slowly down the A14 and trying to find our little turning off with no deceleration lane and backing up in the slow lane of the A14 and then trying to find a parking space near, near the office. And there's no parking spaces and so people pulling up on the verge just is that not a slight recipe for disaster fraught, fraught with issues there i feel yeah well that's sort of how you be right but yeah. um at, about 30 years ago um we decided that the blackthorpe barn which is a beautiful old medieval barn on the estate which we had just started to restore that um that this might actually be a rather good location to sell our trees from even though it was not visible from the A14. And there was um, several people around here thought I was completely barking mad to try and do this, but I was, I, I'm a bit stubborn and having decided on this, I just pushed ahead with it. Um, and we, we, we relocated our Christmas tree operation to the Blackthorpe barn from the, the edge of the office. And um, the barn is a big place, and I thought we were going to rattle around in there with our trees. And so I thought, well, we need something else. And um, Katie Millard, who is a friend of mine and does a lot of stuff with crafts, and she's an artist and painter, um, she, she and I discussed the idea of setting up a little craft fair in the barn as well to make the whole thing a bit more sort of visitor friendly and that sort of thing. And she used to do a craft fair in Cambridge and she managed to persuade a whole load of the makers there to, to up sticks and come down to us for the weekend or do two or three weekends and this this was the first year we did the the um, Christmas in Blackthorpe Barn with the Christmas trees and it was it was a roaring success even though it was it was a very very cold winter I can remember 
the ground was completely frozen, which in a way was a good thing because we didn't have a car park. And so um, exactly. it, it would otherwise have been a sea of mud, but as it was, it was all rock hard. Perhaps if it had been a sea of mud, I'd have got so put off, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, the um, class as, as it was, I was rather bitten by the bug of putting on events at the, in, in this great big medieval building. And we've been doing it ever since. And, so that was when, George, when did that begin? Um, well, we're celebrating our 30th anniversary this year. So it's about 91. Kind of thing. And um, that it's, it doesn't sound that long ago to me if I say it like that. But, it's, <laughs> it, but there's a lot happened in the intervening period. And um, we, we've grown and grown and grown with the help of masses of very talented people, not just the craft fair, but we now have a brilliant Christmas shop um, that's uh, open every day, which of course is like an adult Christmas tree thing. There's a gorgeous cafe with very, very good homemade food, which is uh, open every day. Um, and we now do workshops where people can sort of learn wreath making or basket making and things like that. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a big old operation with many thousands of visitors. Certainly Blacksalt Barners, built a reputation as being Christmas, really, in West Suffolk, isn't it? Well, that is what we try to do. And, um, and well, I think we've succeeded and we're very proud of it, actually. Um, it's uh, the barn is so atmospheric that uh, it gives us a huge advantage over other people who might try to do it, who do it out of a set of modern farm buildings, because, you know, all our built buildings are, are wooden and um, the thatch barn itself is is 16th century and so that's you know people come just to see that they come and see it when it's up in you know, when it's just empty as a as a building really uh, so um it's it, it it's a great it's a great opportunity that we have and the other opportunity we have is that we're perched on the side of the a14 but we now have a junction junction 45 is a you know proper functioning junction on and off the a14 and of course a road like that can be a a burden but it can also be an absolute gold mine and for us it's really the opportunity that we have because um no thanks to anything we've done but um, we have this junction in the middle of the estate and we can bring in thousands of members of the public from all over the place um, who can get here you know if people travel for an hour people can you know you can get here from way the other side of cambridge or you could get it from colchester for example quite easily and and then it's and then they don't get lost. This is the other thing that um, so many places that one goes to that are in the most gorgeous locations in Suffolk. They're down all these lanes and things. And well, I have to say I don't have a very good sense of direction, so perhaps I get lost more than most. But um, I frequently get lost trying to find other places, and I think how lucky we are that that's not really an issue here. So, do you use the barn for any other activities during the course of the year? Uh, well, it's it's we we rent it out to somebody who puts weddings on for a big lump in the, of of the summer months, and that is uh, that's very successful. And um, for me, the the great attraction is I don't have to do it. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, we did try to. I mean, everybody said, "Oh, you must put weddings on. You must put weddings on." So we tried doing a few weddings on our own. Um, and because we weren't geared up for it, the whole thing, I just found the whole thing to be a complete nightmare because, um, you know, it's a huge skill set knowing what 
what everybody is going to want, anticipating all those sort of needs and catering for them. And we weren't really equipped for it at that stage. But now we have specialists who are fully equipped for it, know exactly what to do. And that makes an enormous difference. I just sit back and think, oh, there's another one going on tonight. And here I am at home with my glass of wine watching the television. <laughs> yes, leave it to the experts. That's, <laughs> that sounds like a very good idea. So uh, going back to the Christmas tree sale. So here, we're, we're recording this in the middle of November. You say that you will sell them up until what stage? 22nd of December. People say, oh, well, you know, you ought to be selling them on Christmas Eve and things like that. Um, the way people buy Christmas trees has changed massively. And I think it's a good thing, really. Um, in, in my childhood, our family used to bring the Christmas tree in on the 23rd of December, straight out of the field. And this would have been a Norway spruce in those days. And then we would have had live candles on the tree the following night. And because we had a half Danish family, we used to celebrate Christmas Eve and we would all dance around the Christmas tree arm in arm singing Christmas carols. Um, I wouldn't rececommend this. <laughs> These days, uh, you know, my point really is that things have changed so much. People now want to have their Christmas tree earlier and earlier. And, and I think now almost your typical customer wants their Christmas tree at the beginning of December. Mm. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. The only thing is you need to make sure that you get the right sort of tree because a Norway spruce, which uh, we used to have uh, with our um, old fashioned Christmas would be in the house for about 10 days. And, and the candles would only be lit that very, that one occasion. And the whole tree surrounded by fire extinguishers and buckets of water. And we were all given instructions what to do if things went wrong and, and things like that. And, and um, Having decorated the tree, my father would put the candles on and would then inspect the tree for about half an hour to make sure that there was no decoration hanging above a candle. And it's all quite scientific sort of stuff. But um, the tree used to dry out. And by the time it left the house, this was before you had tree stands that held water and things like that, um, the, the, the tree was dropping its needles a lot. And that was just how Christmas trees were. But if you tried to bring in a Norway spruce now at the beginning of December, you would, you would be um, wanting to change the tree by the middle of the month, because that's just how they are. Um, you, you can make them last more by putting water in the stands. And we sell lots of tree stands that hold water. And um, I'm always dealing with customers who are asking about that. And I explain that it's like cut flowers. You, you, um, you, you give them masses of water. And the first day, they have a huge drink. And then they just keep on drinking and you just keep topping it up. Um, but these days, people really, they, they, they want to start at the beginning of the month and people just want to make the most of it. Yeah. And good luck to them. I think it's a great thing because there's a, people put a lot of effort into making the house nice for Christmas. And it seems silly to just do that for a very few days. And uh, as we sell Christmas decorations, we're very keen on them doing that. So just talking through the science of Christmas trees, obviously you've then, you sell more than one variety? Yes, we sell basically two sorts. Um, Norway spruce, as I mentioned, which is the old fashioned traditional Christmas tree. Um, spruces, um, there, are, there are spruces and firs. Spruces tend to 
um, to lose their leaves more quickly and firs tend to hang on to their leaves better and Nordman fir is the thing which is now really coming in there the people have tried lots of different um, types of trees but they're really the two choices which it's now boiling down to Nordman firs last longer they've their needles are much softer, lusher looking. And when you've started having that sort of tree, I think it's unlikely you'd go back to a Norway spruce. They are more expensive. And the reason for that is the fact that they take a lot longer to grow and their maintenance demands are considerable, well, they're different and they are considerably more than for a Norway spruce where you basically just prune the ends of the branches and they just heal over and you can't see that you've done that you, you can't see that it's happened um, and so basically they're the two sorts of trees there are other varieties you can get a Fraser fir which is a slightly slimmer version of a, Nor of a Nordman fir and there is a noble fir which is a very fragrant um, version which is grown particularly in wetter climates so uh, West Country or Ireland are very good for noble fir we tend to concentrate on Nordman fir here because that really grows well for us. So other, you, do you grow both varieties? Yeah, we grow both. Time. And um, one of the things about growing Christmas trees is that you, you're having to anticipate what people are going to want in 10 years time the whole time, because clearly, you know, it takes a while to grow a tree and a six foot tree, which is probably about the typical thing people would like to have in their house, um, it takes more than six years to grow that. A Norway spruce will probably take seven to achieve that, and a Nordman will probably take 10 years. So, um, you know, the trees we plant, it's not so much um, what sort of trees, it's the proportions of Norway spruce and Nordman fir that we choose. And what we are doing is gradually reducing the amount of Norways um, each year. And we take as a guide Scandinavia where, and Germany, where they've been in this business for, in a professional way for a lot longer than we have. And there you don't see Norway spruces at all. Right. And in, I think you could probably say in Norway, you don't see a Norway spruce as a Christmas tree. They, you know, the, for a big thing to stand outside, you know, um, Trafalgar Square or something like that, that would probably be a Norway spruce, but then that's not going inside a house. And so it's a very, very different scenario. But something that's going inside a heated house, really um, the, something that hangs onto its needles much better is a, is a great thing. Also, it helps us as growers because we can um, control our um, supply of trees better in terms of cutting them in the plantation, getting them ready to bring in to sell to people. Um, with an always spruce, you absolutely had to cut them a day or two before you sold them. And so if the sales were going faster than expected, you had a real problem on your hands cutting the trees to get them ready and bring them in. With, a, with um, Nordmans, you can cut them a week ahead, two weeks ahead, and as long as you leave them out in the plantation, they, um, they will really, it will make no difference. Mm. Um, and um, it always amuses me when you go to, um, Perhaps you go and have a pub lunch around Easter time and you wander in the car park afterwards and on the way back to the car and you suddenly see that area where they dump all the rubbish at the back of the pub. And there's the pub's Christmas tree. And I always go and have a look. Um, and you can see the ones, the people who've had a Nordman because the tree's absolutely fine. 
if it wasn't that people don't have Christmas trees at Easter, they could have still had it up in the pub. <laughs> and if that is makes a big, big difference. So um, I, I, it is the way forward. So how, what's the overview that you have of the ecological um, issues regarding Christmas trees? Because there would be some that would argue that you know, this chopping something down and then just sticking it up for a little while and throwing it out afterwards uh, probably isn't overly sound. Um, but no doubt you've thought all that through. Yes, I think I probably thought this through. Um, <laughs> many, many years ago, when we were growing Christmas trees here to start with, we used to grow them in ordinary forestry plantations in, in between the other crops in the rows. In the, so um, you would have to fence the plantation against rabbits. This we had to do anyway. Um, and this was a way of getting an early cash crop out of the space that you'd have to spend all this money on fencing. Um, but you can't now plant conifer trees in ancient woodland, ancient woodland sites and things, and quite right too. I wouldn't dream of doing it. But the fact that we weren't able to do that and that we were trying to become more specialist in our Christmas tree production meant that we had to grow Christmas trees on sites that were not woodland sites, but were effectively old arable sites. And usually the worst fields that um, we struggle to grow anything on. Um, Christmas trees are not particularly demanding in terms of, of, of what they need. Um, and so basically our Christmas trees are grown on arable sites, it's not woodland. They look like woodland, but it's a sort of, it's a form of horticulture. Um, and when you cut a tree down, you replant it. Um, and basically they provide um, environment for wildlife for the duration of the plantation. And then when they're felled, there's a plantation next door coming along. There's a rolling process and, and of birds. Uh, there are a lot of birds that um, use conifers as nest sites and there are insects that use them. Um, I would, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge advocate of ancient woodlands. We, um, real forestry for us is about growing oak trees and things like that. And we spend a lot of time doing that sort of thing. And of course, an oak tree environmentally is a lot better than a Christmas tree. We grow both. Um, and by gr and growing Christmas trees on arable sites, we're not actually impacting on the oak woodlands at all. If somebody is going to um, consider the alternative to um, a, a naturally grown Christmas tree, um, well, one op option, obviously, is just not have a Christmas tree. And the other op option is to have a plastic Christmas tree. And I think if you compare the, economic, uh, the environmental impact of a plastic Christmas tree, probably made in China, shipped across the world to this country and then shipped around the place and, um, and then eventually going into landfill at the end of its life with an organic natural product that will rot down and become compost. Um, I, I think that it's clear where I, what I think about it. I mean, I think growing a, a real tree is actually an environmental thing. Um, people think, oh, poor tree, you shouldn't cut it down. And um, you, we wouldn't be able to grow all those trees if we didn't cut them down because the way forestry works you have to keep thinning a plantation to make room for trees to grow so the whole process of growing trees involves actually cutting them um, it's part of the process 
um, and and which is people learn when they have a spend a few minutes thinking about it and perhaps being taken around and shown. They usually then un can understand what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Now that's that's it. So, what would you recommend someone does when they're finished with their tree? They get to early January. Can, could they just throw it out, put it in, so it goes into landfill, or are you there alternatives? Chop it up and put it in your brown bin if you've got such a thing. Um, some people um, chip them, and then they, of course, they can go straight in the compost heap. Basically, they will decay, and so um, they they need to they need to be recycled. But they are an organic, a bit of organic recycling. Um, a thing which we used to do historically here, and again they used to do in Denmark, was to put the tree out in the garden and hang food on it for the birds mm. to eat them. And um, it sounds a lovely thing, but if you just imagine the first gust of wind, they just go <laughs> straight over. It's, it, it's, a, it's a very nice idea, but it's not wildly practical. You have to do a lot to make this tree stay up, but it's, an, it's another thing, you know, it becomes a bird table. It's quite a nice idea, really. So with your... Uh... Uh, input from from Denmark too. Uh, you must have a view on was was this all the responsibility of Prince Albert to uh, uh, bring Christmas trees to the UK? He was he was an early adopter, I think. We say. Um, I don't think he was that there. Historic there's historic evidence of earlier people than him bringing trees here, but because he was from a German background and they had the tradition, and he wanted to bring that with him. Um, and of course, uh, it's. He, 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 he did sort of push for it, but I think you have got to remember that the royal family in this country were German on both sides. And so, um, and I suspect um, for quite a long time used to speak German at home. Um, and so, the, and they used to celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve and things. And, and I, think, I think it was really the First World War which brought a lot of that stuff to an end because suddenly obviously um, it, it was in danger of questioning patriotism and that sort of thing, which was clearly um, erroneous, but it was just thought that it, it would look bad. So suddenly a lot of these traditions had to change. But uh, um, Albert certainly was one of the early adopters. We can definitely say that. So uh, you did mention your ancient uh, woodlands and your forestry that you, you focus yeah. on uh, in, in a larger scale. Talk us through that a, a little bit. Well, we have 650 acres of woodland here, as I mentioned earlier. Um, about 110 of those acres are what's called ancient semi-natural woodland. Now, that basically means that it's been a woodland site back for several hundred years, um, and that which as far back as we can trace it. And if it's been a woodland site that long, it's almost certain to have actually been a woodland site for thousands of years. And so it's a very valuable environmental asset, a very precious commodity, which we are increasingly learning to appreciate now. Um, and we, we look after these um, woodlands very, very seriously. Uh, we've started, we've reintroduced coppicing um, in our ancient woodland sites, uh, which is the thing which had stopped for about 40 or 50 years here. Coppicing is where you cut down the understory of a wood. That's things like hazel or sweet chestnut, hazel usually in Suffolk, growing underneath the oak trees. And you cut this down every 
10 or 15 years, and then it grows back up again from the base, which is called the stool, the coppice stool. And if you cut, if it, you start off with a, you can imagine a, um, a hazel, small hazel tree. And if you cut that down to the ground, what you'll probably get is three, three or four stems coming up. And if you let them grow for 10, 15 years, and you cut them again, you'll probably get 10 stems coming up. And these stems grow up straight and vigorously because there's a big, there's a big root underneath. And uh, they used historically to be used for things like broom handles and thatching brooches and a whole lot of country things, country things, rakes and things like that. The, these days, of course, it's difficult to find outlets like that, um, though a, a few people will determinedly make some product from them. But the, it is part of um, biomass production now, I think you have to say. But what it does is to enable the um, ecology of the woodland floor to remain unaffected or well to, to get it to it operates in a cycle of this 10 to 15 year rotation where light gets in and then it's gradually shaded out and then light gets in and it's gradually shaded out and this enables bluebells primroses oxlips cowslips masses of wildflowers to grow in the wood um, it enables butterflies and insects to survive, birds. It, it makes the whole wood an extraordinary environmental resource. And it's a thing which had been not really appreciated during the previous 50 years. And people just thought this is an uneconomic form of forestry and it needs to be got rid of. Now, I think we understand that woodland, woodland of this sort is very special more than special, it's deeply precious. And um, we have to do what we can to keep it going. I think most of us have also discovered that in particularly in the east of England, most forestry operations don't actually make much money anyway. And so you might as well do something, do some good when you're doing it, rather than just trying pursuing a financial goal, which is probably a bit illusory. Um, there are there, there, there's money to be made from certain things within a woodland cycle, but but in an ancient woodland cycle, if you imagine planting an oak tree and then waiting 250 years for it to be felled to, to get your money back, compound interest and things. I'm I'm not very good at maths, but um, it's it 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 takes a lot of um, a, a lot of return at the end of your 250 years to actually pay for the process. Obviously, the theory is that you do this every year during that 250 year period. And so you're benefiting from other people's tree planting before. But um, it is, it's, e even though forestry prices are quite good at the moment, um, it's, not, it's not really an economic activity when you cost in the entire process, but that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. It's, huge, mm. it's hugely worth doing. And there are always going to be bits that you can fell. Um, we've now felling sort of mature softwood, which was planted by my grandfather and by my father, um, that, that have really, that earn quite good money. Um, but we have to think when we consider replanting those, what we're going to replant with. Um, and very often that really needs now to be oaks. And um, obviously we're never gonna see these as, as, um, as timber. But um, the fact that we know that they will be an extraordinary environmental thing for the future is 
um, is reason enough. And from time to time, the odd tree will be felled and will help to fund activities. Goodness, and just thinking about your six to eight years for a Christmas tree to grow. That's like a, <laughs> it's like a minute. It's That's nothing. like a minute. <laughs> Compared with these. Yes. Goodness, how on earth do you produce a business plan on, based on a 250-year growth <laughs> Take right. that to the bank. <laughs> yes, that would be quite an interesting discussion, wouldn't it? Probably <laughs> a rather me. short one. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one other addition that you have to the estate is your is your tree sculpture, which is with this in mind, I understand. Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, we um, because we're celebrating our 30th anniversary of doing the craft fairs here at the barn at Christmas, um, I've, I felt that it was, a well, not just I, but a group of us felt that it was important to commemorate this, um, this year with something a bit special. And there were various suggestions made, but I felt it was important to try and do something that had a bit of permanency about it. So in the end, we commissioned a sculpture and we used a an ancient um, oak uh, tree trunk, which had to be felled last year for, well, I say ancient, it was about 400 years old, it's pretty old, but it was a, a tree that was leaning over one of our road roadways um, and was threatening the lives of anybody going underneath, and it had to come down. I mean, health and safety trumps um, ancient trees, I'm afraid. It's a sad fact of life that where you have a tree growing by a road and if it's, um, if it's in danger of falling, I'm afraid you've got to do something about it. But so anyway, this, we, we've been able to give this tree a second lease of life by um, converting it into a sculpture. We got this man to cut it down, the, the whole cut tree trunk lengthways down the middle to open it up like a book, which was quite an operation. It took him about a day and, um, with a chain, enormously big chainsaw, and then wedges and sledgehammers and crowbars, and then anyway, eventually it, it opened up, and uh, he he took it away to his workshop. Well, he's he's part of a cooperative of sculptors who operate here in Suffolk, and they basically worked on it for about six weeks, and they've turned the two inside surfaces into. Um, in, into a sculptural frieze, which is a sort of um, sculpted into the surface or the flat surface, but you still have the surface behind. And so the idea is these are now in position here at the barn and you can walk in between the two sides and you can look at the two sculptures on one on either side. And uh, what I, because I'm so obsessed with this business of ancient woodlands and the environment, uh, I wanted to tell the story which is coming out now about how um, in ancient woodlands all the roots of the trees link up with each other across the wood um, helped by fungal threads, mycorrhizal fungi are a thing which we have been known about for some time but I think their, um, their importance is only now being really fully appreciated. And what it means is you can have a tree at one end of the wood that, for example, is having um, a drought problem or something because of some feature of the little bit of ground where it's growing. And trees in other parts of the wood can actually send water to it. It's <laughs> extraordinary. 
what it means is that when you look at a wood, which you're in some ways you could almost say you're looking at a single organism. Mm. And I just think that's so exciting. And I wanted to um, try to tell the slightly complicated story on the frieze inside this sculpture. So um, I've, I've got a sort of text as well beside it for anybody who wants to read it to wonder what on earth's going on. But it's, um, it seems to be drawing attention and people are coming up and looking at it. So that's near the barn then, so anyone who'd be visiting would see that? Yes, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's very close to the barn and uh, you'll walk past it on your way up to the barn. So today, as we speak, middle of November, 19th November, um, you're opening for Christmas trees. Yes. Um, the barn is already open. The barn's been open. <laughs> Sorry, you're checking your watch. watch. I'm holding it. <laughs> it's quite all right. It's quite all right. I'm not actually selling the trees myself. I just want to make sure it's all going smoothly. Uh, the, the, the barn has been open since the 25th of October. So with our Christmas shop and the cafe. And then the craft started on 6th of November. Now the trees on the 19th. I, I always describe it a little bit like um, somebody who's spinning plates on sticks. You know, you see these people do it, rushing around doing this and the, you get one of them going and then you try to get another one going and you have to keep going back and spinning the first one again. And eventually you can get several of them going at once. And that's really our Christmas operation. You get the, the shop going and the cafe and get that plate spinning and then the crafts and then you have to run around doing two. Now we're having to run around doing another one. And uh, it's uh, it, it, the first day is always a little bit stressy because there's always something you've forgotten. Now you think after 60 years we would remember it all, but uh, there's always something or other that we've forgotten to do, probably the price list or something. And uh, <laughs> so there'll be a little panic in a few minutes, no doubt. Oh, I'm sure it will all work swimmingly. Well, many congratulations on on reaching your 30th anniversary for the, well, uh, thank you very the much. establishment of the, the barn and, and obviously this history of Christmas trees and all you've been able to tell us on that. I've learned a huge amount this morning. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's been lovely to talk to you, George. Uh, we wish you all and all of you at uh, on, on the estate and at Blackthorn Barn a, a very happy Christmas. Uh, and a happy Christmas to you as well. So I want to thank George for his assistance in our recording and uh, for the very interesting story of uh, Ruffham and Blackthorn Barn in particular. And also, I want to say a very big thank you to the team who put this podcast together, Kevin and Sally Birch and Joy Day, for all their work in ensuring everything goes out on time, sounds good, and looks good too. That is nothing to do with me. Uh, so thank you once again for listening to the Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsley Wealth. Please do ensure that you support um, us by um, following this so that you get the most recent episode. And if you can give us a five-star rating so that others will find us, then we'll be eternally grateful for that. Thank you once again, and we look forward to having your company once more in another episode. 